Hello, welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. Before I get to today's guest, a quick reminder. We've launched a YouTube channel as a companion to this podcast and for my other works in the philosophy of food. As listeners to this show know, I often ask students in my philosophy of food class to make video presentations of food that has a personal meaning for them, just like I ask the guests of this show. So to start the YouTube channel off, I'm putting up the video presentations of some of my students who agreed to share their presentations with you. There are a few videos up now, with more coming soon. The most recent video I uploaded is a presentation on cookies called alfajores, which is a recipe that, like the student presenting it, has influences both from Argentina and the Middle East. You can find a link to the video in the show notes. Consider subscribing so you can see the other videos that are coming soon. Today I'm talking with Robert Skipper on the topic of the social construction of obesity and some of the justice issues associated with that, as well as the way he teaches his philosophy of food students, food as an aesthetic object, and a lot more. It was a really fascinating, wide-ranging conversation that I think you're going to like. Let me read Robert's biography. Robert Skipper is a professor of philosophy, affiliate professor of environmental studies, and fellow of the graduate school at the University of Cincinnati. His main research interests are the historical and conceptual foundations of evolution and ecology, and issues at the intersection of science and society. Skipper has published widely on issues in evolutionary genetics, biological controversy, obesity and public health, and food justice. He teaches a wide range of courses in philosophy, including environmental ethics, science and society, and philosophy of food. Skipper received a BA and MA in philosophy from Texas Tech University, which is not that far from where I am, and a PhD from the Committee on the History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Maryland, College Park. He grew up in Maryland, Florida, and Texas. He's a husband, a father, a sometimes gardener, and all the time mixologist, which, by the way, um, he provided some drinks recipes, which you'll get at the end of the episode, and a lover of classic jazz. And now, here's my conversation with Robert Skipper. Let me start by asking, how are you doing today? Well, I started my day with a faculty meeting. How does that sound? <laughs> Sounds great. I'm yeah. sure you came away from it energized and enthusiastic, proud to be doing the thing you're doing, and really filled with a kind of uh, you know, confidence that this is a good use of your time. Well, I do know that it was over at 10, so that was good. <laughs> I, always, you know, I always say, like, I teach for free because I love teaching. And I certainly do research for free. I'd be reading these books and trying to tell people about it. If you fired me, you pay me for that stuff. You pay me to attend yeah. meetings and fill out forms, you know. <laughs> and all the rest of it. Right. Yeah, right. No, I agree the, completely. <laughs> yeah. It's the, you know, the uh, I act for free. You pay me to wait around until it's my turn to act sort of <laughs> approach. Um, so we have a, I have a bunch of things that uh, we might get to today. We'll see how far we get. And um, if we don't do everything, I might grab you back on at a, certain point in the future. But one thing I wanted to start with um, is that uh, sort of a confession on my part, even though I have uh, done quite a few interviews at this point um, about different aspects of food and the food system and our relationship to food, for whatever reason, I haven't gotten anybody on before uh, to talk directly about obesity and overeating, even though that's obviously a huge problem facing quite a lot of people in the United States, Um, not just health impacts, but also um, you know, sort of the way that our society makes you feel really bad about yourself. Like, you know, there's a lot, you know, and it changes our relationship to food. Um, you know, if we aren't 
whatever we seem, whatever we're told is like an ideal weight. Um, and so I, I feel like that's a kind of missing hole. And uh, I'm really excited to have you on to talk about that. Um, you've written a bit on the social construction of obesity. And I'm wondering if you can just sort of explain what that means for people who haven't, um, weren't familiar with this. Sure. Uh, actually, I think it might be helpful for us to go and think about um, you know, sort of obesity adjacent topic if we go back to Aristotle. Sure. And think about gluttony as a vice. Right. Um, you remember for Aristotle, a vice is uh, um, two extremes. And so gluttony is the extreme of a trait that we would call moderation or temperance. Mm hmm. And the other extreme then would be some kind of starvation. Yeah. yeah um, some sort of like overly abstemious kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Now, when we talk about that, when we're talking about the, the, the vice of gluttony, Aristotle describes it not as really enjoying food too much, but as enjoying the feeling of being full. And so you don't eat to enjoy the food. You eat simply and solely to be full, just mm -hmm. to have that feeling. And that's, I mean, that's an interesting idea, but you can already see sort of the way in which a value is being put on um, this idea of our behaviors that surround eating. Obviously, he's talking about virtues and vices. Um, and I think it's interesting that he would think of gluttony as a vice um, because when you look at the two extremes, when you look at gluttony and you look at starvation, at least at the endpoints, I don't see bad character. I <laughs> right. see illness, right? And especially if you look at the at the negative end, what what I'll say is right the the withholding food side. We don't think of that as a character flaw necessarily. We treat that as a disease, and there are a number of names for those diseases. There's sure. anorexia nervosa and bulimia and those kinds of things, and we treat them as a disease. And on the other end, we could think of the same way about treating gluttony as a disease. And my intuition is that that is a very different way of thinking about, uh, well, that is a sort of two different extremes than if you were to think about a more traditional virtue like courage, where the opposites on the one hand are rashness and then cowardice. Mm -hmm. We don't necessarily think, um, I mean, I guess it's not immediate to think of rashness as a disorder or cowardice as a disorder, we do seem to lead to lead ourselves to think of those as character flaws in a certain kind of way. So I think what Aristotle is doing is already reflecting um, uh, a kind of way of dealing with um, something like obesity or, or gluttony in particular in terms of his set of social values and perhaps social values that were governing ancient Greece at the time. Okay. Well, I know that the ancient Greeks are known for, um, and then the Romans as well for having much less of a separation between sort of like internal virtues and characteristics and outward physical appearance than we normally, even today in, in our society with all the pressures we have about physical appearance, we don't think that evil people are ugly necessarily. Right. Um, and it's also interesting that the Greeks loved food sure. um, and that Aristotle and Plato before him did not so much apparently love food or at least love the thing that goes with food. So it's kind of a weird tension. I, well, I wonder if that's 
uh, related actually to sort of Aristotle's thought. I mean, you're right that Greeks love food. And for those of you who would like to experience some of the delicious uh, food that, that we're talking about, I suggest you take some wine and soak bread and cheese in it until it becomes a mush and then eat that because that's that was uh, quite popular at the time. But, yes. but, you can always go through the Odyssey or the Iliad and uh, try to recreate some of the feasts. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> go for it. Uh, send me pictures. But, um, you know, so like for, for courage, for Aristotle, like one way to think about it is that um, there's a dangerous situation and you, if you're well-functioning and everything's going great, should, you know, you're sort of an erotic good guy, you should recognize the danger and have some sort of emotional response to it um, and recognize your duties and do those in spite of the fact that they're dangerous, right? And that that's courage. And then if you are a coward, then you recognize the dangers, but you don't do what you're supposed to do in that situation, right? You run away, even though you should stay and defend your friends. Um, and in a and if you are brash or reckless or whatever, then you don't properly recognize the dangers, right? So you so uh, either way, it's a failure of that sort of two part thing. And so I'm wondering if maybe for gluttony, the idea is. Um, you know, if, you, if you're eating a right amount, you're healthy or whatever, you recognize that food is delicious or that, I guess, feeling full is a pleasant sensation. Um, and then you know that, and then you have a correct action, which is eat up to that level and then stop. Um, and if you are too thin, then you, I don't know, I, I guess it's the switch. I guess it's the reverse so of, of the courage one. So you're missing out on understanding that it's a good feeling to be full, right? And that hunger is something to be avoided. And if you're gluttonous, then you do perceive that, but you're overreacting. You're not doing then the right action in the face of that sort of emotional response. So I can see why he would think that it was sort of of a piece. But yeah, that's certainly nowadays, um, we think that uh, physical hunger and our ability to make choices in the face of it is sort of different than our feelings about courage. Yes, I think so. And I, and I think... What happens here is um, what is Aristotle and, and the rest of us, I would say, are participating in this way of negotiating the world um, by trying to come up with a way of dealing with this phenomena without really understanding it. Right. And so we attach a whole bunch of disjunctive traits to it, um, often going head going um hand in hand with personality traits. Mm -hmm. So the person who is overweight or obese is um, perhaps lazy. Um, they don't have a strong will. Um, they lack it. Sometimes they're considered to be less smart than the rest of us. I think that's mm -hmm. a relatively popular trait, um, less successful. On the other hand, I'm not sure what the personality traits then get attached to the other side of it. Um, at least as long as you're not too far on the, on the extreme. And so that's what I would take the social construction to be, right? It's our social negotiation of how we're going to deal with this phenomena that we see of overweight and, over, uh, and obese people. And we um, imagine in a certain way a whole bunch of different characteristics of these people, and then we put those into action. And, and the worst part about that, I suppose, um, in this case, at least, is that when we put those things into action, they have real effects. If you think of a concept like race or a concept like gender, we think of race as a social construction and we attach all of the epithets we generally do with particular races. And then we treat people in terms of those races. Those have real actual effects on people. 
Sure. If we redline communities, then that causes poverty. And then the people who are subject to that poverty have downstream effects of that poverty. Sometimes that also means diseases that can come from that. So in spite of the fact that social constructions can seem to be this kind of an imaginary thing, they are actually um, real and minimally in terms of their effects. Yeah, I and think I that's think- helpful. I, I think a lot of people, like when they hear the phrase social construction or just a social construction, the intuition is that you're claiming that it's not it's not real and doesn't matter at all. Right. But- uh, like money is a social construct. <laughs> it and it matters quite just, a lot. <laughs> right. It, I mean, you know, have, have money from a civilization that doesn't exist and you'll find that money was just a social construct. This piece of paper does nothing. But yeah, it has a lot of material effects <laughs> where you fall in that yeah. particular social setup. And I think money is a funny, a funny uh, member of the social construction gang because m- money in a certain sense is a real thing because you can hold it in your hand. Um, and so I think people kind of forget that we invented money as a way of making certain kinds of exchanges. So it really was just an agreement on our parts, in spite of the fact that you can hold this actual object. Yeah. Pretty paper is a real thing with, you know, presidents on it. Designs on it. Money and, and nations. Another example. I I think some of the thing you're saying here about the social construction of obesity. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. First of all, it goes back to what I was just saying a second ago, where I claimed that, uh, we are much less like the Greeks and Romans in the sense that we think ugly people are evil and handsome people are good. I mean, Shakespeare was already playing with that with Richard III and stuff. Um, but uh, I, I mean, to an extent, it is actually still true for our society, very much inheritors of the Greek and Roman kind of ideas. Um, you know, we do think that people who are overweight, that it's some sort of, it's a sign of character flaws and we're okay with kind of commenting on that in a way that I think a lot of other, and, you know, I think if you push people on it, uh, they'll say something like, well, it's not healthy. It's like, well, yes, that's true. But we see people engaging in all kinds of unhealthy behaviors that we don't then think we're making these claims on. Like um, somebody who says, I don't get enough sleep uh, is almost, they're almost bragging if they say I don't get enough sleep. It means I'm hardworking. I'm too focused. If anything, I'm too driven. All of these kinds of positive things. Even though, I mean, that's very unhealthy for you. As unhealthy as obesity, or at least in the same conversation. I um, mean, even people... Well, I was going to say smoking cigarettes, but I think the conversation has shifted in my own lifetime about smoking cigarettes. But when I was younger, um, smoking cigarettes, also very unhealthy. People knew it was, but it wasn't a sign that you are truly a bad person. Whereas I think that in some parts of America, at least now, uh, that is becoming more of a thing, maybe because we've associated it with overweight, poor, uneducated people or cigarette smokers, right? We've made that kind of jump in our heads so we can start doing that. Right. That's a good question, actually, whether or where that shift actually happened. Because yeah. um, like you, I can remember those days. And one of the things that I was thinking about with in terms of uh, of obese people is that they often will be treated poorly by physicians. Yeah. Just, I mean, just in the way that people of different races are treated poorly in certain kinds of contexts. Um, they go into the doctor and they want um, help on something completely unrelated or seemingly unrelated to obesity. But the the physician can't stop focusing on the fact that they're obese and gives them recommendations that are not um, in the relevant context. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Is it just because, again, if you came in and told the doctor that you weren't getting enough sleep, but I'm here because my knee hurts, they wouldn't say, well, first thing I want you to do is get more sleep and then we'll talk about your knee. If I'm being charitable, I could say that doctors think (laughs) nutrition is um, at the core of our well-being. 
But I don't I mean, think physicians actually think that. No, I don't have a lot of conversations with my doctor uh, <laughs> about like whether or not I'm eating enough green leafy vegetables or getting enough omega-3 fatty acids. You know, our, for better or worse, our, our medical system is much more oriented on fixing problems after they've arisen than have those kinds of early conversations, except for obesity. Right. So I, when I have, you know, if you're middle-aged like me, the conversations that I end up having, because I am, a, I am overweight, is about calorie restriction. Mm. Um, not about particular eating particular kinds of foods, unless it's salt. There are a handful of categories, but it's about um, making sure I'm not having too many calories and then making sure that I'm burning more calories than I take in, which is a very you know standard way of thinking about things. The physics of of energy consumption are you know certainly true, sure. but they're not uh, the right way to think about being at a normal weight or being underweight or being overweight or any of those things. Um, the conversations really need to be more about the kinds of things that you're eating, if it's really going to be the core of our well-being. So I think, um, you know, it's a problem to solve. And the way you solve the problem is by um, eating fewer calories. And they can give you, they'll give you a nice list of, uh, you know, and put you on a restrictive diet <laughs> and, the, and the whole bit, um, if you care to follow them. You could also care to just have a nice discussion with them about these things, but they don't really have the time to do that. Right. I think part of that trouble is that, you know, they get an hour of nutrition, you know, in medical school. I mean, I don't know that for a fact. I know they don't get very much at all yeah. um, formal training in nutrition. And the formal training that they do get is very currently, I think, in the literature, um, we're in this interesting period of change. Nutrition for a long time was considered, you know, macromolecules, some of the other micromolecules, um, calories, and all of those things. And basically, it didn't matter what the package was that those calories and those macromolecules came in, just as long as you were getting the relevant macromolecules. Right. This is now like there was we, a dream someday that we'd be taking pills, you know, in the Jetsons future that, you know, hit all of those things that we needed. Exactly. In fact, that there is a product out there that's like that called Soylent, yeah, right. which is supposed to be a food substitute that has all the nutrients that you can eat. But the interesting thing about Soylent is that you can't eat just Soylent and expect to not get sick because the package matters. And I think right. that's one of the things that we're starting to figure out. Um, some people in nutrition science, like Marian Nestle, figured it out a long time ago. Their message wasn't getting out. Probably not until Michael Pollan uh, wrote In Defense of Food, which was a much more popular sort of way of looking at it. Um, but it's still the case that medicine, as it's practiced, you know, in your general, in your GP office on a daily basis, still is in that much more reductionistic macromolecule calorie way of thinking. And um, outside of that, People who are um, at least thinking about it and reading in the newspaper, you know, the New York Times has lots of stuff about food all the time, sure. um, are celebrating a different kind of way of, of looking at food. And it's a weird mismatch, just kind of waiting on treatment to change. I got so confused about that that I actually went and bought some books about obesity treatment so I could see, well, is it, I mean, are they just not paying attention or what's mm -hmm. to the literature? No, it still is, right? Um, calorie restriction, maybe um, some uh, pharmacology, 
depending, and then um, therapy. And then if it's a it's a, an especially worrisome case, they'll say surgery. Yeah, surgical um, interventions like, you know, lap band or th- those kinds of... Th- th- those and those interventions are very restricted. They're uh, meant for a very, very tiny fraction of, of folks. Um, so that hasn't changed at all in spite of the fact that what... Um, what nutrition scientists is telling us is that we need to have a whole different way of looking at food. We might not be able to have that way of looking at food if things go the way they're going, right? If the Mm -hmm. Western diet continues to expand as it is and vertically integrated multinational corporations control all the resources to produce it, um, we might not be able to get to the point where we can actually think about food differently. But um, it looks like it's just kind of a weird schism between medical science, some of nutrition science, and then the general public who is at least thinking about food. It's not that everybody is thinking about food, that's for sure. Although I think there's, you know, there's kind of another thing that's going on too, sort of related to doctors, where we're all, each of us gets to be doctors for five minutes if somebody walking past us is overweight. Right. Um, you know, like people who do, who are in fat studies will often um, make, you know, draw connections and you know similarities and differences with disability studies. But one way that I think it's different is that if there were a news story about how um, you know there's a lot of people with disabilities in our city, um, so you know they're having trouble because things aren't very accessible. There aren't a lot of ramps or something. You wouldn't have a sh- you wouldn't have the 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 classic stock footage, which as soon as I describe it, all, all the listeners will know what I'm talking about. Of people cut off. So you don't see their faces. That way there's no legal problems. Neck down shots of people walking around in public being overweight, right? As if that's some sort of like weird transgressive move on their part to show their bodies in public. And there's an extent to which like your body becomes sort of this public object where people can talk about it, talk to you. People you've never met can talk to you. Uh, people feel like it's, a, it, it's you know, they can point at you maybe behind your back if they're a little bit nicer, but there's some sort of sense in which uh, by being overweight, you are opening your yourself up to that kind of uh, judgment, which I think is, I mean, it's, it's pretty interesting, right? We wouldn't, I think most of us wouldn't do that to somebody who was in a wheelchair, for example. We wouldn't think that, you know, like I should ask them why they're in a wheelchair and give them my advice for how they can like do therapy to not be in a wheelchair anymore and talk about how I knew someone who's in a wheelchair and now they aren't. And so they should do what this guy did. And, you know, take pictures of it to show them jokingly to my friends, look at how this guy is in a wheelchair. Um, and yet he's trying to exercise. Isn't that hilarious? Uh, you know, like there's, so there is, there is kind of this other thing going on, which I think probably informs doctors too, since they're also obviously in our society. Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. I think, I'm, I mean, I like the point about um, the wheelchair, but I do think human beings are, Prime to notice differences, sure. especially big differences. Um, and I think that some of the differences that we notice are just less acceptable to comment on socially than others. So somebody who's disfigured, perhaps, right? We know that people notice and stare. Little sure. kids are probably the worst about that because they don't know one way <laughs> or another. Um, but it's not appropriate then to make a comment. We know that there's a norm against doing that. We know that there's a norm against... Um, um, talking about the disabled in a way that is, you know, um, uh, puts them down. But with people who are overweight, that has not kicked in. Um, do you think it's because we think it's people's fault in some sense that it's yeah, not? Yeah, I do. If you have a disability? I do. I think, I mean, 
you know, I live in a bubble. So <laughs> I sometimes tend to think that the people in my bubble all think the same way I do. So that, of course, they don't think that um, that uh, obesity is as fundamentally someone else's fault because they have a weak will or something like that. Um, probably just ne- means I need to get out more and talk to people. But um, I really do think that people still are fairly convinced that the reason there is um, overweight and obesity is because we have decided somewhere somewhere along the lines, we have just began eating too much somehow mm-hmm. and enjoying that. I mean, I, I can't help but then want to tie it to the fact that the percentage of obese people globally is growing. Right. So, and I want to say, well, how could it be happening to all of us in sort of exactly the same way? We're not all suddenly weak-willed. That that doesn't seem right. Um, it might seem that there are some external causes that are are responsible for what's going on. Yeah, and um, even if you say that there's more food available now, it isn't the case that people through all of history always eat all of the food they have access to. I mean, even now, nobody eats every single thing in their kitchen every day and <laughs> has to replenish their kitchen every day. <laughs> well, it's interesting, too, right? In the um, 18th century America, food was really plentiful. Sure. Um, and in fact, um, to go to a tavern, say, and have a meal, which would be, you know, sort of family style with you don't get a choice in what you have, um, the what you had access to was enormous. It was probably not very good, very pleasant to the palate because, you know, boiling was probably one of the more popular. There was a big rejection of French kind of influence on cooking in America and in England at the time. So we're not going to do fancy, uh, fancy herbs and spices or anything like that. We're just going to boil it in the water and we're going to eat it. But obesity was not the issue that it is now. And not because people in the 18th century had stronger wills than people in the 21st century. That seems um, almost foolish to think. It's because the environment that people were in in the 18th century was quite a bit different than the environment we're in now. Um, Our environment now is, right, the term we call our environment now is obesogenic. Mm -hmm. So it's the idea that um, the environment is such that it will cause you to become overweight and obese by sort of existing within it. One of the ways I first got into obesity or or interested in um, thinking about obesity was by sitting and I was having a conversation with some other philosophers of biology about evolutionary mismatch. An evolutionary mismatch is just the idea that when um, when you have a set of traits that are adaptive in one environment and then your environment changes, but your traits don't change. Right. So now your traits don't match what the environment is giving you. You can imagine that there are going to be all kinds of effects on the holder of those traits as they push through that environment and so on down the line as you know as reproduction occurs. And I think that's what's happening in our environment now. It's not as if we and, – and I don't think that trait is willpower. I don't think there's a gene for willpower now that suddenly um, – we never did have any willpower. We just now have lots of food and so we eat it. No – I think what happens is, um, at least in the West, where the Western diet has had a lot of influence, um, the food that we eat is of lower quality and higher in refined sugars and refined carbohydrates. And our work demands seem to be changing toward, um, and school demands seem to be changing towards uh, more sedentary 
way of being than active way of being than we did before. So there's your evolutionary mismatch, right? It's not as if our ancestors sat around and scrolled uh, to see the funniest TikTok video <laughs> while having a bag of chips. That was not an option. This isn't to say that hunter-gatherers say, um, didn't have plenty of downtime. Uh, sure. They did. They just use their downtime differently than we do. And it's it's not clear how to solve the problem of this mismatch that we now find ourselves in. So that's what I would say, right? If the social construction of obesity is this kind of very value-laden criticism of the person, mm -hmm. um, then the actual fact of the matter is the stuff around um, our, our obesogenic environment and the way in which uh, food is made and sold and distributed. Yeah. And, you know, even if um, we don't have a good, easy solution right now, though, if you think of it before this conversation's over, feel free to tell us. That would be good news. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I'd be famous. That would be Yeah, good. exactly. That, that, this would be great breaking news for the podcast. I'd appreciate it. But um, even just viewing it as a public health issue um, that's affecting everyone a little bit and some people a lot um, would hopefully just change our way of interacting with one another, right? Um, you know, if it's seen as a social problem that we're all trying to work together to find a way to solve because it's really affecting everybody, um, is, you know, then why judge the person who's being affected by very badly? At least that's the optimistic thought, though, maybe recent experiences with a, a certain pandemic as a public health problem shows that we, we do, we're, we are still apparently still willing to blame individual people uh, for our perceived uh their, the way we perceive their failures of uh, action or inaction in certain ways, uh, but hopefully it'll it'll chill us out a little bit. That might be good. I think um, that's I think that's really really interesting because I think what we have to do. I think the pandemic is a great example here about the fact that we you know no matter how many times it's said um, and persuasively argued that this is a public health issue that is uh, you know right on the edge of life and death. Mm -hmm. um, people will still say it doesn't exist or, um, or blame other people or, you know, it's a sort of individual choice whether you want to participate or not. I think the way to really look at these questions requires a lot of cross-cultural data. I think looking at our own way of dealing with these things is probably not the best way of dealing with things because we still have that rugged individualist way of being in, in, in the U.S. Um, I'm not knocking it. I'm just making the observation. Sure. Um, even if you look at what we got out of the Affordable Care Act in terms of um, dealing with overweight and obesity is suggestions that are about focusing on the individual. So calorie counts in chain restaurants, for example. Right. As long as I give you the information to deal with your personal situation, I've done my job. And now it's up to you to do the rest of the job. Well, yeah, that is a really, really old way of thinking about well, it. Well, the good news is we're all rational actors who unfailingly pursue our long-term <laughs> best self-interests. Uh, so, you know, no problem. As long as, I mean, the only possible market breakdown is when there is uh, limited information. So uh, as long as we have maximal information, then everybody makes good choices. And it, the problem exactly. Solved. Hey, we did figure it out. The world is such a perfect place. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Chicago <laughs> school, classical economics. We, we did it. Uh, as usual, it saves the day. <laughs> um, uh, so 
you know, now one thing to mention, though, is that, you know, like a second ago, I said that it's a public health issue. It affects everybody uh, to some extent, some people more than others, um, like like most or like many public health issues from, you know, pollution to all, you know, all sorts of things we might think about like that. Um, but like those, uh, though it is true that it affects everyone and it is true that it affects some people more than others, it is also the case that there are patterns in who's getting affected more than others. Um, and again, like most public health issues, like most environmental uh, health issues, uh, it turns out to be along traditional lines of which groups in our society are marginalized, which groups in our society are have been oppressed historically and are currently being oppressed, which groups in our society don't have access to full resources. So, you know, we have this sort of odd situation where uh, poverty is strongly correlated in the United States with obesity, um, even at the same time as it's also correlated with malnutrition. Uh, so, I mean, I think that's something that be, should, should be kept in mind when we're thinking about public health issues, that they aren't just, even though it, yes, it does affect everyone, it's also the case that it's an injustice that's happening. And also it might explain part of why we think we're, it's okay to say people are bad for doing this because it's also a classist judgment that's happening at the same time. Right. You know, you're too poor to make good food choices. Um, but I, you know, there are these um, videos you can find on YouTube here and there of um, people commenting on the, food choices of others when those people who are shopping are um, using a SNAP benefit. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, you're buying chips or you're buying, um, you know, junk food. Is that the best decision you should be making with your dollar that I am giving you, right? Because right. You know, it's coming out of my tax dollars in some, some possible world, I suppose. You can actually find those things and it's kind of remarkable but your other point about the, the ways in which um, obesity as a public health problem affects different groups differently is, is interesting. Um, one of the things that I try to do with my students when uh, we talk about um, this issue in philosophy of food is we read In Defense of Food. And at the end of In Defense of Food, Michael Pollan has a whole bunch of rules for eating, mm -hmm. right? Eat uh, plants, not too much. Um, or eat food, mostly plants, not too much. Yeah. And that's great. Um, and then he has a whole bunch of rules about how to do it. You know, eat local, grow some of your own food, eat organic. Yeah. And I think, oh, aren't those great ideas? Who can, who are the people who can actually follow through on those ideas? And of course, my students get very annoyed because none of them can, <laughs> because they can't afford. You know, if they're going to go buy chicken breast, they can't afford organic chicken breast and they can't afford all these things and they don't have the time to shop locally and they might not even have a car to get to a farmer's market or something. So I asked them, you know, who who is he talking to here? And is that where really the problem is, right? Are these the people who need to be talked to? Because people who have the time and the resources to do all those things are often already thinking about the, the, it themselves anyway. And there aren't any solutions for the groups where this issue is is hitting the hardest, right? Issues of food sovereignty in uh, urban areas, um, food deserts, mm -hmm. um, school lunch programs in poverty-stricken areas, and, all, and and those sorts of things. Um, Pollen is not talking to those folks, and so his recommendations in the end kind of are empty. Yeah. No. I mean, there. It seems. It's already the case that the poor get 
diabetes and the, the rich get organic as the, as the saying goes. Right. Um, it seems like those, those kinds of moves, um, are, you know, sort of the opposite of what we're talking about, right? That it's saying not only are, there are people who can make these individual choices and those people have the resources to, including time, um, to learn about these things and make these kinds of choices. They have the money to make different sorts of choices and more options because they have more money. They have, uh, you know, they have less stress in their lives so that they can sit and think about that, even ignoring the fact to which, the extent to which stress is by itself abysogenic. Um, it lets you also, you know, look at three things in the grocery store and think for a while about which one of those you want to get, um, you know, calmly. And, you know, that is the opposite of trying to treat it like a public health problem. It's a way of pushing it onto, uh, onto back onto people um, and sort of judging people then for being poor as well as for not, uh, you know, as well as for being stupid and lazy and fat and all, all of these sorts of negative things, unattractive. I think that's one way of seeing it, but I also think uh, another way of seeing it is about who is able to participate in the market and who isn't able to participate in the market. I'm able to participate in the market where I can do just as you said. I can look at these, say I got two products, I'm going to buy the organic kale or the non-organic kale. I'm already choosing between kale, right? So I'm Mm -hmm. already in a good place, so they say. Um, But that kale is not going to make three meals for my family of four. Mm-hmm. What I need to have is bulk food. So yeah. I'm in a whole completely different aisle looking at stuff that's much cheaper. I'm looking at rice. Um, I'm looking maybe at pasta if on a, if things are good. Right. Um, but you're looking at processed food because processed food is shelf stable. It's extremely cheap um, and it's very accessible. So it's going to depend on the place where you're able to walk into the market and participate in certain kinds of ways. And I think there are differences. So it's not really just, well, I can make the decision because I have, you know, all my preferences laid out as you were talking about earlier. Um, It's that perhaps I would make a decision that's different, but I don't even know what those decisions could be because all when I, my marketplace looks very different from somebody else's marketplace. Yeah. I think that's true. And where I am down in South Texas, we're one of the most um, productive areas of row crop vegetables. You know, this is where ruby red grapefruit came from. Uh, So we export out to the rest of the country, all of these nice, fresh, fresh, healthy vegetables. And yet it is sometimes it takes, it trades off with Appalachia, the place for the most uh, food related illness in the United States. And so, you know, that sort of dichotomy of, uh, you know, healthy things going somewhere else, Incoming is processed food, chips, you know, all sorts of uh, cheap, shelf-stable things you're saying, uh, you know, I think is really indicative and should lead you to predict correctly that this area is poor, this area is largely non-white, this area has a lot of people who don't speak English, this area has a lot of people who um, have questionable documented status for staying in the United States. And so, and all of these things sort of come together and put people in a position where they're having to make these, you know, where they're being funneled into certain sorts of choices rather than other ones. Um, but, you know, I think that points at something you were mentioning earlier about uh, about how we should all only eat Soylent. I think that was your point, right? That we should switch <laughs> over to that. Pretty sure that's what you said. Absolutely, yeah. Right, yeah. Well, as a paid shill for Soylent, you, you yourself make this argument. Um, or, or possibly a paid shill for, um, you know, the plumbers who benefit from everybody switching over to Soylent. Uh, that I, I think there's a, uh, you know, you, you've written in 
thought about a little bit um, this idea of reduction, right? So if we're, we're reducing people to just market actors, those are the only kinds of choices, you, mm-hmm. the, the only kind of way you can interact with each other in society. The only thing you can do is give people information so that then they can make those choices. That's all. That's all we get is market interactions and also reducing food, right? To Food is the, the thing that's on the back where it says all of the nutritional information. Right. And that's kind of all there is to food. So can you, can you talk a little bit about that sort of like move that we have in our society towards reduction? Yeah, I think um, this is an interesting place where cross-cultural data is really critical. I think in in Western science in particular, and um, I think we might agree that in Western philosophy, reduction is king, right? Explaining big things in terms of small things. Um, So with food, and this, I mean, this goes back to... This goes back at least to the 19, early 19th century with the discovery of the first macromolecules. The idea was, well, I've got it. It's protein, it's carbohydrates, and it's fat. We'll put those in some sort of package, give you that package, and you can live a healthy lifestyle. So the early infant formulas for infants who were not able to take breast milk was a combination of cow's milk and uh, uh, broth. Um, and perhaps one other ingredient that's slipping in my mind at the moment. And um, magically, infants didn't do very well right. on that formula because um, it's not necessarily only that you got the nutrients wrong. It's that just putting those nutrients in that package is not going to do it. Right. What happens is if I were to take an apple and I were to discover all of the nutrients in the apple, pull them out, and put them in a pill, and you were to take the pill, the thought is, if you're a reductionist, they're equivalent. You mm-hmm. have everything you need um, in the pill, except for the delicious sweetness and flavor of the apple, although maybe we could Willy Wonka the thing and <laughs> do that too. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the case. What seems to be the case is that the package in a certain way matters. It's certain, it matters in the way in which the apple interacts with your mouth, with your teeth, with your um, with your saliva, with your digestive systems, um, and that there's a feedback system between you and the ingredients in the apple and within the apple, the ingredients themselves. And in the end, the food becomes more than just the sum of its parts. And that's the way we have to think about food. So this idea is like, oh, well, I don't get enough vitamin C in my diet. I'll just take a vitamin C pill. Um, is not the way to try to think about the issue. If you say, oh, I feel like I'm not getting enough vitamin C in my diet, you should have perhaps an extra orange. Um, or not even think that I don't have an, enough vitamin C in my diet is that um, there's something else altogether going on. So it's really just this idea that we've been thinking food in terms of nutrients. We should think of food in terms of the objects, um, the actual food objects. Mm -hmm. And um, instead of considering, you know, where do you get your protein, right, is the question that every vegetarian gets asked all the time. Um, Which uh, I don't even think the question could arise if we didn't think of macromolecules first. I don't know what the question to the vegetarian would be. Um, yeah, I, I, I consider. I mean, my my opinion on that particular issue is that they would find something else because I think what's going on is <laughs> they want to say, look, the Elam Vital, 
the, the vital life force of animals that you eat like Highlander style when you eat an animal that then powers you to, to move. How do you get that if you're only eating vegetables who don't have animated souls? <laughs> That's the question people want to ask, but they know that none of those words are true <laughs> in the history of science has moved beyond all of those concepts. And so instead they pick a different word for that same thought, right? That they said, okay, right. we, we're not, we're no longer, apparently that's not true anymore, but I still, I kind of still know it's true. And so a new word, they grab onto it. And my evidence for that is that I have vegetarian friends who are German and they were shocked when people asked them about protein because no one ever asked them about protein in Germany. In Germany, they'll ask you, how do you get your iron? And uh, you'll say, well, there's lots of iron in vegetables and right. people will just straight up call you a liar. Like, right. no, there isn't because <laughs> iron's in blood, right? And so it's still a way to like latch onto that same that same kind of concept. But, you know, talking about not, redu- not reducing things, another way that we shouldn't reduce things not just to not think of an object of food in terms of its nutritional sort of, in, you know, elements. Also, eating isn't just putting food into our mouths. Oh, right? goodness. Right. Like it, it's a consummatory kind of experience that it has to do with the time of day and what's been going on contextually up until this moment when I'm eating and who I'm with and what I'm doing and the light levels. And I mean, that's true for all of us in terms of our enjoyment or our experience of that meal. Right, who, what it looks like, and who we're talking to, and what we smell from somebody else's table, and what we're thinking about is all part of eating. Um, and certainly, in terms of uh, eating too much, you know, eating unhealthily. Uh, I mean, it's clearly the case that what's going on in your life and what's going on around you in this moment is going to dictate how much you eat and what foods you choose. So, just in terms of health, it's there as well as sort of what we already know is the aesthetics kind of appreciation of food. Yes, food is. Um, a- deeply cultural activity that we, or it, well, it isn't now, but it was once, and it still is in some places, a deeply cultural activity. Now um, life has gotten to the point where we eat our, our lunch at our desks mm-hmm. um, after we've zapped it in the microwave because it's got to be super fast. Um, when we get home, we zap the next thing in the microwave and eat it quickly so that we can get back to whatever work we were doing before. Um, we eat on the run which in some cultures is just uh, a really horrible thing to do. And, um, people can't understand why somebody would be, um, you know, finishing their sandwich on their walk to the subway. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do it all the time. So we eat alone. We think of food as fuel, not as something to be enjoyed or something that has cultural roots or as being part of a particular kind of culture. Um, and I, that's, I mean, that's kind of, I think that's tragic. I mean, it, some would say it just doesn't seem to be really important to emphasize those aspects of food, but I, I think that that has to be wrong. I mean, I think um, food culture is a way of, food in that way are, is like a really good story, right? Mm-hmm. And we live by really good stories, right? Everything we do is guided by a narrative in some kind of way. And food, I think, is part of that narrative. And by, you know, scientizing and reducing food, we've kind of eliminated all those aspects of it. And and that's a real shame. I think it's too bad. Yeah. And I I think that, so like in terms of just enjoying your life and having a good life, it's sad (laughs) and a bummer. But also, you know, in terms of uh, eating healthily, I think that we're, I mean, Pay me the grant to do the research to prove that I'm right about this, if you don't believe me, uh, that, you know, uh, 
to the extent that people try to say, look, you're overeating. It's important for you to think of food as fuel because that'll help. I actually think it's exactly the opposite. No, I think I that yeah. thinking about food as just something I put in my mouth is actually one of the problems that our society has as we're moving towards a more uh, or a less healthy relationship with food is that it isn't something that I, that I feel like I should have with my friends and my family in a particular setting. Um, it's just something I shove into my mouth whenever I get that impulse to do it. Uh, you know, the people who are saying food is fuel is saying it isn't, it shouldn't be used to like deal with your emotions, but I don't think that's right. <laughs> I think that no, the reason I... people feel like, you know, I eat my feelings is because food is deeply tied to how we feel. It's right? weird to cut that off and pretend it isn't the case. Uh, so, you know, you teach a philosophy of food class. Um, so do I, uh, and I teach philosophy of food uh, as a standalone course. Uh, originally it was just a, uh, like a special topics class, but there was enough interest every time I taught it that it became a regular class. And now I'm actually working on uh, developing a food studies minor in my university. Oh. Um, so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about who your students are and how you how you teach these things that we've been talking about to them and like what sort of other topics do you usually cover when you're teaching philosophy of food? Mostly so I can steal your syllabus. <laughs> so um, I'm in my third iteration of teaching this course. And what I try to do is organize it around three big questions. One question is what food is good for you? Mm -hmm. One question is what food is good? And one question is what is good food? So the first question is the nutrition question. And essentially, we work through nutrition science and criticize the reductive notion of um, a food. That is always pretty eye-opening for the students. During that period, I have them keep a food journal that we then look back on. I don't, of course, ask students to present their food journal and tell me the deepest, darkest secrets of what they eat. We just talk about some general kinds of ideas and about their habits around food, because that Keeping the journal makes them think about what's what their what what their relationship is with food. Sure. Then we do this time. I I did the aesthetics of food first. So we'd focus on physiological taste, and then we focus on aesthetic taste mm -hmm. about food and whether um, food is um, appropriately considered an aesthetic object. My personal view on that is that it's a no-brainer. Of course it is, and I I'm not. Definitely not alone in that view, but I find it practically unbelievable that the history of philosophy is mostly a history of people who have thought about this, mostly a history of people who think food is not an aesthetic object. Well, it's using the wrong sorts of senses for one thing, and it's too immediate well, yeah. for another. But uh, but. So would you take the further step then? Like I've had Carolyn Korsmeyer on this podcast before. Um, would you take the further step then and say, okay, it's an aesthetic object of appreciation. Is it also art? Whatever that means in our society. So I'm no aestheticist. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me preface my remark by saying that. Sure. But I think absolutely. Uh, one of the things that I like to do is um, I can't take all my students to Chicago uh, which is only four and a half hours away from me. I can't take my students to Chicago and say, let's all go have a meal at Alinea, right? The three-star Michelin restaurant yeah. in Chicago, one of the best restaurants in the world. And because then we could just all leave and be convinced and happy. <laughs> um, but if you look at what chefs like Grant Ashatz are doing, just the food alone, without thinking about what it tastes like, 
um, how expensive it is mm-hmm. or, or its components, it, they, I mean, I would never want to say to Grant Ashatz to his face that he wasn't an artist. Right. I think that would be incredibly offensive to him. You're more of a, a laborer, a technician, or something like that, <laughs> right? I, you know, that's certainly what what uh, Plato uh, Plato would say is that, oh, yeah. you're a pretty good craftsperson, right? And that seems to be, you know, way off the mark. Certainly, um, in some circles, Ferran Adria, the um, the person who started the modernist food movement, or is credited with starting the modernist food move, movement with uh, restaurant uh, El Bulli in Spain. Um, is considered a fine artist. Mm-hmm. Um, a fine artist is considered an artist by some, not necessarily philosophers. I think philosophers have only been able to elevate it, at least constrained by the aesthetic theories of the day, as a minor um, yeah. art form. And I guess that means it's more like fashion mm-hmm. um, than it is like Van Gogh, and. Um, I just think so much the worse for today's aesthetic theories. We should probably work from the food and work our way out. Yeah, that's kind of Marilyn Korsmeyer's position is that uh, right. the, 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 to the extent that you can make an argument that food is an art, you're just making an argument that art is a stupid category to separate things yeah. out into. <laughs> right. Um, and there are a lot of weird cultural reasons for that, um, uh, about the nature of the art world that figure in that I think you have to worry about. Um, so then the last thing I do in the course is I do the ethics of food choices. And we, mm-hmm. there we read um, Peter Singer and Jim Mason's book, The Ethics of What We Eat. And uh, I like that book because it portrays three different families. And so it's a very sort of um, ground level view that the students resonate with well. Um, and that's where the students get the angriest because they learn about all the things that go into um, making and distributing the food that they buy that they mm-hmm. aren't aware of. Right. Um, and it's extremely upsetting to them. And they still feel trapped because they can afford Tyson chicken, but they can't afford the organic chicken that lives free range, actually does live free range and fed a natural diet on all those right. things. So they're trapped into committing these, you know, moral wrongs that i mean the things that they generally start to believe are moral wrongs and i probably should start adding therapy to the end of my (laughs) my course so that people can deal with that because they do at some come back and they have changed things to the extent they can but it's pretty tough on um on you know especially if you live in a dorm and you're trying to live on a meal plan sure i think you're not going to make it so that's that's how i've been doing it um but it I'm also thinking about changing it and to put in more food history. Mm. Um, I do a really fast tour through food history, starting with uh, the advent of fire. So it's a long history, um, as you might imagine, (laughs) uh, up through agriculture. um, And then, you know, we focus obviously on the post-agricultural era when we do that. To that idea of history, one of the things that um, we discuss as a possibility to talk about in this podcast was um, that Jared Diamond sort of thesis that agriculture uh, basically was a, a, a wrong turn in human development. Can you talk a little bit about like about that? And do you talk about it in your class? Sure, I do. Um, um, so 
many years ago, 1987, uh, Jared Diamond published an article in which he called uh, the shift from hunter-gatherer to agriculture was the biggest mistake human civilization ever made. Mm-hmm. And um, he actually, in a certain way, backs that up with some evidence. But what he's reacting to is this notion that often gets applied to the Enlightenment, right? Is that the idea is that all this progress, there's this all this technological progress that has been made throughout history, and that progress has made us all better off. And so what Diamond is saying is, no, in this case, at least, it hasn't made us better off. It's made us worse off. If we had stuck with the hunter-gatherer way of life, we would have fewer diseases, we would have healthier people, we would have better diets and all those kinds of things. And he has some interesting data to back that up, at least in the early part of the change. So out of the Fertile Crescent, when um, agriculture was being essentially invented or discovered. Um, to that, I respond in a couple of ways. Is One is, well, okay, I would probably expect that people who are doing something brand new that had never been done before about something so important as food might do it badly early on. And that could have bad effects on their their health. Um, And the other thing is, is I don't understand how to see this move as a mistake from the move from, say, um, the hunter-gatherer lifestyle to the agricultural lifestyle. It was a process of, of biological and cultural evolution. And biological and cultural evolution are in, in certain ways blind to whatever decision we make. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we think of it in terms of cultural and biological evolution, then what we all we can say is, well, the change was made. And that is the change that seemed to be evolutionarily more beneficial than the other way. Yeah, we're just more because adaptive, just more successful. It's just more just more adaptive. Yeah. Because after all, it's what exists. It's what took over. This yeah. is not to say that there aren't still hunter-gatherer populations or for a long time had been uh, um, hunter-gatherer populations. Um, it's not as if traits just can go away entirely. They just, their frequency just becomes very low. And so in that sense, I don't want to put any kind of, you know, progressivist spin on that. And so I don't understand how the debate comes up. Sure. I wish I could have a conversation with Jaron Diamond to say, hey, could you help me understand why this, you know, you want to talk about this in a revisionist way rather than a progressive way, because you think that this decision was bad, because I don't think it was a decision at all. I think it's what happened. And I think it had certain advantages at the time. Um, and I don't think there's anything inherently bad about agriculture that would have made it a mistake anyway. Yeah, I, I mean, think there are a whole bunch of other things that have to go with it in right. order for it to be a mistake. I mean, possibly it's just because you're farther along the dialectic that, you know, because it, it's useful to do the diamond kind of move of actually the thing that we've always taken to be a universal good is bad, right? Like the antithesis, right? And you're, you just moved into the synthesis like, well, it's, you know, it's good and bad. Uh, but <laughs> uh, so that's, you know, so it's not you can't reason backwards. Although, you know, you say that um, it's an old paper from the 80s. I will counter yeah. that uh, Rousseau from 1754 is even older than that. And he yeah. had a lot of the same arguments that um, I mean, not based on nutritive health or, 
you know, how much we're getting different kinds of calories or whatnot, uh, or trading carbohydrates, you know, trading proteins for carbohydrates. But, um, but the idea that uh, agriculture is inherently hierarchical, that as soon as you have this kind of food, you have food surpluses, as soon as you have food surpluses, then you have sort of parasitical classes like um, priests and guards to protect the grain silos and philosophy professors uh, like us uh, that, you know, that, that, that then they start oppressing everybody else. And that's still very much the story um, that you hear from lots of people who write big histories, right? Harari and all of these kinds of books that come out that are very popular are basically just doing Rousseau again. Right. Um, Which why I was quite interested in the, the Graber and Wengrow book um, that they did shortly before David Graber died, RIP uh, about how, um, if modern archaeological evidence actually shows that that isn't necessarily the case at all, that lots of societies that went through agriculture managed to be non-hierarchical too, that it's not, it, it isn't sort of this inevitable sort of whiggish steps forward, but rather, as you're saying, sort of evolutionary adaptation where different things are trying, you see different things spike up in different places. Some things are uh, maladaptive over time. Other things just outcompete other things. You know, that it's, it's actually much more complex than people have said. Uh, very much so more complex. I think, I think the trouble is that two things get conflated. On the one hand, in this case, agriculture gets conflated with the econ- econ- economics that it is pulled into. So maybe capitalism and agriculture are two things that don't go together very well and that those can have bad effects. But that doesn't mean some other form of economics and agriculture could go together nicely sure. with agriculture and it would work beautifully. <laughs> sure. Although we should just try it at some point. Yeah, although that reminds me of a, an old Kamel Nanjiani joke uh, from his stand-up routine from years ago where he, he was talking about the new drug that everybody was talking about in the news at the time, cheese. And he looked it up and it turned out to be Tylenol PM and heroin. And he said, <laughs> I really think heroin's doing a lot of the heavy lifting on why that's bad for you. <laughs> Likewise, yes, I think capitalism and agriculture are bad, but I think one of those might be doing a lot of the heavy lifting on what the problem, right, exactly. what the problem is. Um, so, and, I, and I think that's kind of what Diamond is is missing is that he's he he seems to want to put the burden on agriculture by pointing out some of the bad effects that it did have people got shorter um right. when we were able to stay in one place and populations got bigger there were more diseases that's true yeah sure um but it wasn't because just simply because we figured out how to domesticate animals and plants um there were a host of other reasons that go along with that and i think those have to be thought carefully about yeah. as well. So who are your students that are taking these classes? Um, so it sounds like this is a standalone class. These aren't like food majors or something. Well, there. so we don't, um, now that you mentioned a food studies minor, I'm going to steal that and do that here. Well, at, let's talk uh, about it because I've, I've been doing a lot of the groundwork for it and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to brace you on how to move it forward. That's great. Um, I teach it to environmental studies students mm-hmm. who um, have to take one course um, uh, one advanced course, environmental studies on food, but that's really about the food system sure. um, and agricultural economics and those kinds yeah. of things. And not, so I thought, well, a good elective companion would be actually trying to understand, you know, food as it is, right? The food is a cultural object. Mm. Um, and sometimes they take it at the same time and they, they come into my class and then they go into the other class and they're just kind of bounced around from one to one to the other and they're confused, yeah. but they really enjoy it. And so probably a little bit more than half of my class um, are those students. And then the other half will be a handful of philosophy majors and then you name it. 
right? It's a humanities course that can count as an elective. So I get lots of different kinds of people. Um, and, you, you know, they reveal to me lots of interesting things because when you start talking about food, you talk about your personal experiences with food. Sure. Um, and so I always get a lot of people who are um, um, exercise fanatics and who, you know, their meals consist of six chicken breasts and six servings of broccoli per day. And they think they're doing exactly the right thing. Mm -hmm. um, and the food, you know, food is fuel and nothing more. And we must measure it carefully when we eat it right. um, and eat it at precise times of the day in precise ways. And um, I, well, I mean, I don't try to convince them otherwise. I just give them a whole bunch of other things to think about. They, of course, can do whatever they want after sure. they get it. Um, it's not like I'm convincing anybody, probably. <laughs> um, maybe one or two people. but um, So it's a mixed bag of folks, um, but all of them still are united by being a student and being a part of a group whose access to food can sometimes be fairly precarious. Yeah. And so these issues become really uh, sensitive ones to them. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about like why I like teaching philosophy of food so much is that, you know, to talk about food is to talk about everything else, right? To talk about, yeah. you know, yeah. you can touch on anything you want. So like when I'm teaching the class, we often will do a Heltke and Boisvert's book, Philosophers at Table. Um, so for those who are philosophy majors, it's a way to look at, is to sort of like rethink about every philosophical sort of area of thought from metaphysics to epistemology, right. whatever, f using food as the, the thing to start from. Right. Um, for those of my students who are not philosophy majors and are taking this as their first philosophy class, I always wonder what weird picture I'm giving them of the discipline by starting <laughs> with that book. But all right, it's fine. Uh, and so we do that. And then, and then we think about, you know, uh, like I read uh, Dr. Uh, Paul Thompson's book uh, from yeah. Field to Fork, where he's talking about sort of all of the different ethical things that kind of come up as you yep. think about different stages of food and get people to think about that long chain from of where their food came from and how right. that's an invisible process for most of us, for most of our food. Even if we have a garden, most of your calories come from magic. Oh, sure. You have no, you have no idea right. <laughs> what's going on. You I know, do try that. to have my get my students to do that exercise Yeah. to say, okay, something that you buy from the grocery store, see if you can trace it back, you know, your Oscar Mayer. Um, lunch meat or whatever. See, see if you can find a farm where the cows came from or the pigs came from. And they discover that it's excruciatingly difficult, difficult and they're probably not going to find out where the it's farm is. Sometimes impossible in principle. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah. you know, that like that hamburger that you had at McDonald's is from four different cows from four different continents. So right. Good luck. So good luck. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I think that's quite interesting. And one thing I do in my classes um, because food is such a personal kind of experience and unlike when you, when I'm trying to teach most of my other philosophy classes where you try to get them to talk and the first thing you have to do is to yeah. teach them your opinions are okay. Let's say, let's see what you have right. to say and then we'll all talk about it together uh, rather than them thinking that either their own personal opinions aren't valuable. Let's hear what the teacher has to say, or even if they've learned, like may, now I'm a senior, now I can say what I think <laughs> my grandmother's experience and the wisdom that I've heard from, you know, most of the people in my, university or first generation college students for my uncollege educated, maybe unhigh school educated parents, grandparents, that's not something that gets brought into the classroom, but food is the exception. Everyone's an expert right. on food that's Everyone, right. and, and their grandparents are even more of an expert than they are. Right. You know, that's, right. it's an appeal to authority to say my grandmother makes it this way and everyone's delighted to share it. They ha we haven't taught them yet that you shouldn't 
that you should be embarrassed or ashamed of these kinds of facts. Um, so right. it makes it for a great class. But so I have my students, um, when we were meeting face to face, bring a food into class and share it if they wanted to. Um, you know, it's optional because you don't want to place a financial burden on students, but right. um, some people would do that. And any day that wasn't filled up uh, that way, I would bring something. Um, and, right. they would, and the idea was them to bring some kind of food that was important to them, uh, meaningful or significant to their life in some way. And it didn't have to be good. And in fact, some of the best presentations were from people who brought food that wasn't good, where they talked about this was our poor meal. If my dad was oh, at work, yeah. this is what we would eat. It doesn't taste good. <laughs> That's the point. You know, um, nobody was happy when this was when this is what we were getting. Um, and then when we moved to online classes uh, last year and now this year, I'm finishing this semester up uh, oh. now, um, we're teaching. I had students sort of turn that into a video presentation. Um, and it's been great. I'm going to keep it as a video presentation, even when I re-add bringing food in, because students have had an opportunity to make some kind of food. There's less of a financial worry about them bringing food for other people. You're cooking for yourself anyway for dinner right. sometime. But bringing – so the camera gets brought into the kitchen and they're interviewing their mother or their grandmother about this kind of food. Or they bring them out into the garden and show their chickens that, you know, like I'm we're going to use eggs from this chicken. Her name is, you know, that kind of thing. Wow. Um, so it's a really great connection. And I think it gets the students to know one another and to know, you know, where people come from in a really cool way. Um and so to kind of replicate that over the podcast, um, I've asked the guests to bring some kind of recipe that they can talk about. And you, in addition to being the first person to finally talk about uh, obesity and overeating as a topic, which obviously I should have done in my first couple episodes, um, <laughs> you're, you're also the first person to bring drink recipes. So can you talk a little bit about uh, what you've chosen for us? Oh, sure. So um, I gave you two. One is um, a recipe called... Um, I believe it's Honey's Applejack, mm -hmm. um, and I I included that one. It's it's a it's one I you know sort of made up. I you know it's not clear whether you can actually create original cocktail recipes because they're all sort of modifications of a formula that are you know common to many many different kinds of drinks. But I I included that one because it's fall. And it mm -hmm. really is a lovely fall, very nicely apple-y kind of drink that is good to have um, um, as a nice, you know, after a long seminar, it's really nice to come home to have a really beautifully made drink with a nice garnish, the ritual of going through all the steps, uh, mixing the honey and mixing the, the applejack. It's just a, a really nice sort of um, way of slowing down something we were talking about earlier that nobody's right. apparently doing. Um, the other one is um, I have this idea of writing a, a cocktail book for philosophers, oh, which, uh, <laughs> which is I mean, a, a great, uh, it's a great art audience. I'm, you're thinking about a subgroup of alcoholics. So I think exactly. that's a smart <laughs> people who, who, I mean, the reason I started getting interested in cocktails in the first place is because I just wanted to have a good martini after a graduate seminar. Sure. And then I, after a while, I was like, well, I'm kind of bored of the martini. What else can I do? And that exploded into a very, very, very expensive habit. <laughs> um, but the other one is called the armchair. And I call it the armchair as a, you know, an idea of talking about philosophy as the armchair sport. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a very boozy drink with um, with rye whiskey and uh, spicy Amaro and uh, uh, smoky tobacco bitters, which is a nice way of thinking about sitting in your leather, yeah, sure. leather chair 
thinking about a hard issue like uh, obesity or, or the aesthetics of food or something like that. So, so I hope I, people get a chance to make those. Um, I think they'll, I hope, and I hope they like them. It's, you know, you put your art out there. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, you know, and I'll encourage people to write in if they find that it helps them conceive of hypothetical situations and thought experiments <laughs> or to reason. Well, you drink them, enough you know. of those and you'll think of all kinds of thought experiments. That's right. Some actually, of them might be bad. <laughs> my favorite uh, XFI experimental philosophy study that I saw was they they were testing whether or not your level of inebriation changed if changed uh, how you approached ethical problems, you know, trolley problem-esque kind of situations where you could either do a deontological kind of analysis or a utilitarian kind of analysis. So again, for our listeners, uh, like a rights-based, don't do the wrong thing, do what's right no matter the consequences versus a, the only way you can know what to do is to look at what the consequences would be and choose the one that has the best consequences. Those two approaches to figuring out what you should do. And they tested this by going to bars and asking people these thought experiments um, and asking them how much they'd had to drink and then coming back and asking them those same people a couple drinks later, similar, but, you know, similar <laughs> questions, but disguised enough that they wouldn't, you know, recognize them to right. see if they had different uh, intuitions. And I just love that because whoever w- figured out that they could get a grant to go to bars <laughs> And drink in order to fit in. Like, I can't not be drinking. That's weird. And <laughs> and talk to people at bars. Man, I just, I got to tip my hat. I wish I thought of it. It's a great study. <laughs> I have no idea if right. it's yeah. statistically significant, but who cares? <laughs> well, yeah, who cares? And right. what was the result? Did the, re- uh, did it, did they change? So the result, uh, you know, I don't, I, I'm not uh, fit to comment on uh, statistical power. Like, you know, if it's vulnerable to p-hacking kind of a thing. But uh, the finding was, the headline finding was that the more people have to drink, the more utilitarian they are. <laughs> so <laughs> that's interesting. I would really yeah. love to know why that is. That, right. Yeah, great, exactly. That's great question. Now, that's, that's the philosophical question. But so, yeah, the, you know, it's possible. They, they, they floated a few possible theories. One is that, you know, they're under some theories of cognitive science, um, utilitarian calculus is less like cognitively demanding. Yeah. So it's, right. you know, it's the quick answer. Well, I would save more people. You know, you have to like sit and think. Um, it's less uh, imaginatively demanding. So you're not putting yourself into, truly putting yourself into the situation and imagining the act of harming somebody in order to help other people. You're just sort of like answering the question math wise. Um, you know, it seems like you're caring about it less maybe. So it's, it's possible. <laughs> but I got to say, I was surprised. I would have gone the other way because based on my interactions with people who've been drinking, they're much more likely to say that they would do a supererogatory heroic deed right. if, if in a situation where that was required once they've had a few drinks. Like, oh, well, if it were me, I would clearly throw myself in front of that train. Like, like people are much more willing to make these sorts of claims. So I, 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 was, I was surprised. I wanted to ask whether or not people were more willing to push the fat man off the bridge. Yeah, apparently. And apparently like, much oh, more yeah. willing. Yes. I mean, maybe that's it. You know, you've had a few drinks. You're like, yeah, screw that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I never liked him anyway. I uh, never liked him anyway. Right. Well, you know, there is psychological data uh, that there is a window of blood alcohol con- content where your creative process works better than it does when you're completely sober. Um, the, uh, and I'm willing to believe that the trouble is, is like, how long does that window last? Well, there's a, uh, Mitch, Mitchell and Webb is a comedy duo in England and they have a skit, uh, called the one and a half glasses of wine club. We're like, <laughs> it's, it's like the Illuminati where they control right. everything just by having exactly one and a half glasses of wine. Every time they make a decision, this is how they've taken over the entire world. 
It seems, it seems plausible. So I, so again, if go. I could get a grant, I would study that. I'm ha- you know, call me if you work for the NEH. Uh, right. Well, th- thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about this. Um, I'll put in the show notes uh, both those recipes and points and uh, point people towards uh, anything you'd like them to. Do you have a, a website or something you'd like people to check out? I don't. You know, I, I, I gave up trying to have a website because it's just too hard to keep up with the maintenance. Sure. Well, you should so. do what all philosophers, <laughs> in my experience, do, which is have a website, uh, be a super active philosopher who's publishing every year, and then have a website whose last listed publication right. is from 1997. Um, yeah, that's what like, I was trying to avoid. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's it's a good look. I think it's you know it's uh, it's retro. I'm so right, busy. Well, I couldn't possibly. Well, thanks a lot. I really appreciate this. Uh, thank you for having me. I enjoyed talking to you. That was my conversation with Robert Skipper. Links are in the show notes, including a link to his recipe for some great cocktails, and as I mentioned at the top of the show, a link to the new YouTube channel featuring some more discussions of good recipes and the meaning of food in people's lives. If you'd like to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you find your podcasts, I'd really appreciate it. It helps people find the show. You can follow us on Twitter, at FoodThoughtPod, and if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed, drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today. 